Welcome to Out of the Question, a podcast that looks behind some common questions and uncovers the question behind the question while providing real solutions for biblical world and life view. Your host is Andrea Schwartz, a teacher and mentor and founder of the Chalcedon Teacher Training Institute. I am joined today by Chalcedon Vice President Martin Selbretti to discuss what I consider an important topic, one that in many cases causes more confusion than it does clarity. Let me set the stage. Back in the early 80s, when I came to faith in Jesus Christ, I became aware of the fact that the final book of the Bible, Revelation, was controversial. It didn't seem to help much for me to read it on my own with the expectation that it would be easily understood. So, like many others, I just avoided the book, figuring that I could maneuver through the Christian life without having to deal with the many images and symbols the book contained, which were really not something that I could easily grasp. In fact, the very word apocalypse brought pictures of devastation on the earth and bombed out cities, and quite frankly, nothing would make me eager to dive into whatever this book said, because I wasn't really looking forward to that outcome. Along the way, I began to feel braver, and I read books and commentaries on Revelation itself and the varied ways it has been and is being viewed today. I've asked Martin to help believers, both rookies and veterans alike, to first of all talk about why this book shouldn't be ignored And as the final bookend of the Bible, God does not want it to be ignored. So welcome, Martin. Thank you, Andrea. Appreciate this opportunity. I would uh, start by saying the book is important for several reasons. One, at the outset, it uh, identifies itself as unveiling the Lord Jesus Christ to us. Now, why would we want to keep him veiled when there is a promise of unveiling or revealing him? That's what apocalypsis really means, is to reveal uh, Jesus Christ and what he's doing, uh, either was doing, is doing, or is going to do. And therefore, uh, this was disclosed for a purpose. Uh, and secondly, the book ends with a blessing for those who read the words of the prophecy in the book. So why would we hide our eyes and our lives from a blessing that accrues to those who read it uh, and keep the words faithfully? So even if you don't understand it, there is to be a blessing involved in its reading because we're receiving God's word and God is faithful to his promises. And if he says he will bless, he will bless. Now it's still on us not to twist the words of the prophecy, because I think at that point, different uh, principles in scripture come into play about uh, wrestling the word of God to our own destruction, say uh, making, making predictions of uh, see Jesus being right around the corner. This happened in the 1500s in Europe and we had all sorts of breakouts of cults and, uh, militant activities, uh, supposedly to, uh, invite Jesus to come back down and establish his kingdom. So mistakes have been made, just put it that way, but it wasn't because the book of uh, Revelation is intrinsic to that. It's because it's also easily abused and exploited for various agendas. I think the only agenda that it actually attends to is Christ's great commission. And the reaction of the world to him and his reaction on, uh, in return to it, uh, and what he's doing, uh, in our day and age. Uh, but this is where some of the controversy already comes in because right. there are different views of when the prophecies, uh, such as they are, 
are to take place. Uh, the view so, that you were speaking of, yeah, obviously, was holding that the book was imminent, that the prophecies were about to unfold right in the time frame that you were looking at it. And saying, any day now, these things are going to happen, and all hell will break loose, loose on earth. So we had this future orientation toward the book that it's uh, pretty vivid events, uh, most of them destructive, it seems, on, the, on first glance, uh, were around the corner here in the 20th century and now in the 21st century. Another, right. view, another view puts most of the book uh, in the past as a description of the divorce of Israel using very strong symbolic language to convey a legal transaction that God has with the people of God that had uh, t- turned their backs on him and their repudiation and their disinheritance. And the other views basically believe that the prophecies fill the entire span between the first coming of Christ and the second coming yet to happen. And so that's where the disputes come. We can't even agree where those prophecies belong and how long they're to be operating, whether they're to be operating for a short span of a few years or for, at this point, 21 centuries. Right. And and I think that's what happens. And I've seen this happen with new believers They come to faith, they're presented with the gospel, it is received as good news, and then they're in churches long enough, and they have people lobbying them, literally, you have to view it this way, you have to view it that way. And it becomes something that actually detracts from their walk, although the Holy Spirit won't let them fall away. But one of the things that in the writings you have done um, on this subject, you're emphasizing the idea that this was given as a blessing. It's one thing if a parent says to a child, you don't do this, you're not going to have dessert. If you know, Or this is what I'd like you to do, and they're rewards for doing what I want you to do. Delve into a little bit how this book shouldn't be viewed like the upcoming zombie apocalypse, and it's much more a comfort to the saints. Well, historically, uh, when the faith has been under persecuting attack and power uh, of the enemy, the book was a comfort. It actually uh, rallied Christians in their hearts and minds, and they were able to steel themselves against uh, the attacks of the evil one, uh, knowing that the victory of Christ would be uh, assured. Um, they could act exactly as other saints in the past say, you know, uh, God may not save us from this fire you have here, Nebuchadnezzar, but even if he doesn't save us, we're not going to bow down to you. And that's basically the essence of the book of Revelation. It gives confidence and strength, and that's a blessing in itself to know that the Lord God is with you, even in a persecuting era. Uh, I'd like to go back real quick to what we were talking about before. One of the reasons that there is controversy and this is in the library behind me. <laughs> it's embodied in the words and all these commentaries and in the conflict between these commentators and expositors and pastors and teachers and seminarians is that what we gen- generally do, and uh, someone caught George Eldon Ladd doing this, he says, well, the problem with Ladd is that he defines my position and these other positions as ABC and then contrasts them with his position, which he calls the biblical view. So at that point, since you've defined your own position as the biblical view, everyone else's must be anti-biblical uh, and heretical, perhaps even aberrational and uh, mistaken at best. 
And therefore, everyone regards each other as uh, making a horrible mistake and getting the book wrong and therefore denying blessings to one another. So there's a reason why there's a concern because we do not speak charitably to one another and we're not as studious as we think with the book of Revelation because it's amazing how many details get slopped over that would cause us to go in a very, very different direction once they are put on the, you know, at the top of the list, you know, on the front burner as opposed to ignored and neglected. It's very easy to get a position off the ground by ignoring details uh, and only presenting the stuff that is favors your view. It's called special pleading in our, in logic. You only present the stuff that supports your position, not the stuff that goes contrary to it. And I think uh, every position, every view of revelation uh, falls prey to this problem because it's a human problem. It's a problem of humans doing theology, trying to understand the word of God. Um, and it's not been given to us to understand the word of God, but it has been given us to have an organic unity and a charitable attitude toward one another. And I think if we're going to fail on that, we're not going to be given the proper interpretation of the book of Revelation because we've already made it very clear we're interested in our interpretation, not the interpretation. And right. we're going to equate the uh, our interpretation with the truth. And this raises the question of presumption. How well did you know the book of Revelation? How many books have been written in my library behind me that got the book of Revelation wrong? Uh, even those that aren't futurists got it wrong. You know, uh, Bengal got it wrong and Hengstenberg got the millennium wrong. According to them, it already had started some time ago. Uh, and, and so you look at the history and it's a history of mistakes. And do we learn from the mistakes? No, we make bigger ones instead. So I think the attitude towards scripture is very bizarre. I've always said this, that looking at eschatology first as a Christian is looking through the wrong end of the telescope. We should probably get a lot of other things down first and then get the eschatology, eschatology down later uh, once we had the foundation for the more complex issue. But no, we decide we need to get our Christians at the PhD level understanding the book of Revelation and their individual lives are marked by kids in public schools, huge massive debt, uh, statism is their fallback position. They were, they're failing on these other fronts, but boy, can they tell you what the book of Revelation is all about. Right, yeah. right. Yeah. So there's no um, accident that the first book of the Bible is called Genesis, and then the last book of the Bible is called the Revelation. All right. So to me, they're bookends, right? And if you miss the books in between, both these bookends are holding up the rest of God's revelation to us. And you make the point, and I think correctly so, that the first century listeners or readers, depending on how they got the message, would have understood images that John presents because they would have been very familiar because they would have been like other images that the prophets had presented or that Moses had presented in the law and even the Gospels and the Epistles. So the point you made that we have people who don't apply what's in between these bookends and they become experts, do you think that's part of the reason why it comes across as such a mysterious book? Because we don't recognize things that have already been demonstrated in Scripture? I think that is a significant part of the problem. If there's ignorance of the Old Testament, then it's going to be very, very difficult to understand the book of Revelation. Now, let me 
clarify that. Most people will say, well, I know exactly what's going on in uh, Daniel 8 through 11, say. And therefore, that's all the Old Testament I really need with maybe a little bit of Zechariah 14 thrown in. And that's the basis I'm going to go attack the book of Revelation. But the reality is that the book of Revelation is full of far more Old Testament allusions and quotations than what I just talked about from Daniel. It goes all the way back to Genesis. It goes back through Exodus and and the books of the law, Deuteronomy. It's all laid out. Uh, One of the better commentaries in this regard was Hengstenberg. Now, Hengstenberg was an Old Testament scholar. He died, I believe, in 1862. Uh, in Germany, he held a line on a conservative approach to the Bible. He went against those like Gazanius who said, well, Isaiah 7.14 is not about a virgin at all. And Hengstenberg uh, said, yes, it is a virgin that's in view. It's a messianic prophecy. So he was the stalwart defender of conservative Orthodox Christendom in his approach to the Bible. But he was an Old Testament scholar. He only did a couple of books of the New Testament. Guess which ones? the Gospel of John, which is loaded to the gills again with Old Testament citations, and the book of Revelation, which is even more so filled with Old Testament revelations, and not just from Daniel or Zechariah, but for the whole suite of things, including the Psalms. So you need to have that foundation in order to do justice to the book of Revelation, because you're going to be missing all these signposts that are flying at you because they're just mysterious, or you say, well, we don't have to pay attention to those details. Uh, those details are there for a reason. You know, God is not uh, sloppy with his de- with his work, with his words. Uh, they convey meaning, and the meanings are always tied together. They're coherent. They co- they're cohesive. All things cohere in Christ, and the revelation of God is a unity. Uh, and therefore, when we look at the Book of Revelation, we should seek to find the fundamental passages that each of the verses in Revelation are erected upon. They stand on another rock entirely. And if you take that rock away and just have it stand in midair, then, of course, you can make any interpretation up that you want. And that often happens. It might be well-meaning, but so many of these well-meaning interpretations have died in the dust of history, which has disproven those approaches. And yet people go back again. I think what they need to do, go, do is go back to the Old Testament and study that really well, and then they might have a better appreciation of what Revelation speaks to. They might want to say, look at Hengstenberg's work or other scholars who knew the Old Testament very, very well and could put the pieces back together for us so that we are aware where each of these odd ideas come from in the book of Revelation. You know, but right. again, it's not just that little few passages of Daniel and a squib of Zechariah will, will do you, dabble do you. That's not the case. You need right. the whole everything from Genesis to Malachi to grasp what the revelation is all about, because it sits on all of that and quotes heavily from all of it. Yes. So here's the thing. A lot of people will default and say, look, I'm not a scholar. I'll never be a scholar. What I care about is being able to apply the principles. And it's not that that's so much a bad approach. It's just that your presuppositions will, in fact, govern the conclusions you come up with. So it sounds like what you're saying is if you want to examine what we would call biblical presuppositions, that will enable you then when you see things in other parts of Scripture. For example, 23rd Psalm talks about the Lord is my shepherd. When Jesus referred to himself as the good shepherd, isn't it sort of um, sort of common sense that people would relate those two things together because they had prayed 
Psalm 23 in the past, and now he's identifying himself as a shepherd. That's certainly one approach. I do want to insert here, inject, if you will, a comment that Dr. Uh, Moorcraft has made, and it's a very powerful one. He says, not all apparent parallels are actual parallels. Something might look like a parallel and not be a parallel. And the reason I raise this issue is that most scholars, I think correctly, see a connection between John 10 and not so much Psalm 23, but Ezekiel 34, where the uh, the shepherd, if you will, that Christ represents in John 10 is actually led out in detail. So it's important to realize that there could be good fits, but we don't know. We need to do additional study and not just say, close enough, that's a good fit. Uh, I just listened to a tremendous little podcast, a very powerful one uh, by a known friend of ours uh, who went into detail about the notion of when men slept, which is a part of the wheat and tares parable. And he made a, saw a lot of value and significance in that. And I'm, I probably will need to write him and say that that actually is probably an overstatement. It looks like it's a good fit. And we can talk about slothfulness and sleepy men and not sleeping at the switch. And certainly we do, but it's not what's in, that particular parallel, the parallel did not, was not making that point. It's a separate point. And so I like to make, make the point that not all parallels are actual parallels. Uh, but that's a, that's a good start, at least. At least we're saying we're trying at that point to connect the pieces. That's to be commended, even if we look at it later and say, I thought that was a parallel, but it wasn't the correct one. There was a better, stronger parallel in Scripture, and I wasn't well enough read in the Bible to catch it. That's why we kind of lean on the shoulders of giants and weigh what they're saying and discern, use discernment, saying, which of these is the best fit? Uh, and what are the de- what are the deficiencies of this, of this position? I think there's no deficiencies in equating Ezekiel 34's picture of the Good Shepherd with John 10's. And I don't believe that the Pharisees and scribes and uh, Sadducees had any doubt that Jesus was appealing to Ezekiel 34, uh, because part of that passage says the other false shepherds are going to be thrown out. <laughs> so we have the whole picture. We have the, the, the good guy and the bad shepherds all in one picture. And so when Christ is equating himself with the good shepherd, by implication, he's also saying, and you guys are going to be the ones that be, are going to be cashiered and lose your jobs. And he actually said as much in the parables. So maybe, just maybe, they understood what we call the Old Testament so well that they knew what he was accusing them of, and that's why they embarked on this thing to kill him. Whereas if we read that, it's very easy to say, well, you know, he was going against the law of Moses because most people in our day won't think that the law of Moses is still operable, and it... It kind of reminds me, Martin, of, you know, the thing they do with psychologists they'll or psychiatrists. They'll hold up these Rorschach cards and they say, what do you see? And people see what their presuppositions, you know, so depending on who you are and what where you're coming from. But there's no excuse for someone who reads through the scripture and then decides, well, we won't include that part because it doesn't support my paradigm. Correct. We see this a lot in uh, this history of commentaries, particularly in the book of Revelation, where a, um, a position is negle- is rejected or neglected because it says, well, that doesn't look like a good fit. But that's a premature rejection. It might actually be a very, very strong fit. But our weak um, foundations of biblical knowledge uh, steer us in the wrong direction to an incorrect conclusion. Uh, 
uh, that's unfortunate but true that it, that it happens, and that's because humans are at the heart of this enterprise of trying to understand and grasp the Word of God and apply it. So uh, I'm in 100% agreement with your, your concerns here, uh, and I believe we need to continue to study deeper uh, and better. You know, we, we need to, for example, I don't want to get too much ahead of us because you might ask this question later. But there's an interesting phrase regarding that number 666 and the verse that it appears in Revelation, which is chapter 13, verse 18, the last verse of the chapter. And it says, uh, uh, let him who has wisdom calculate or reckon the number of the beast. Now, it's interesting, a phrase that he who has wisdom. Throughout the Bible, if you say, where is the source of wisdom? The Bible continually points back to itself as a source as the fountainhead of all wisdom. So it seems to be on the face of it, as I pointed out in an article recently, that this is an appeal to look to Scripture to get the answer to the question. And so if we want wisdom, we do what James says, ask for it, God, ask God for it, pray for it. And then what we do, we become like the Psalm 1 guy and meditate on the on the law of God day and night. And then we will be like the tree planted by rivers of water. Uh, leaf never withers, delivers fruit in its season, etc. So what more could you want than what Psalm 1 outlines? But that comes from what? Meditating day and night on the law of God. And so unless if we're unwilling to do that, I don't see how we're going to get the blessings that are announced at the outset of Psalm 1. Right. So and yeah, right. and there are many blessings. I think there are 12 of them, or maybe there are seven of them. I think it's seven of them, of the blessings, the Beatitudes of Revelation. And so we want to get it right in order to receive the blessings, but we can't be afraid to have our ideas challenged, correct? Correct. Yeah, I agree with you. We should be inviting challenge rather than resenting it. Uh, we, that's the whole point of iron sharpening iron. We should be willing to have a charitable dialogue and at worst case, just depart ways as brothers in Christ and sisters in Christ, but just simply acknowledge or acknowledge the other person's probably mistaken. If he hasn't convinced us, we say, I think he's probably mistaken, but he's still my brother in Christ. And, uh, this is a point that Dr. Warfield made. He says, you know, the most, um, strident premillennialist, he says, is still a brother beloved compared to uh, someone outside the faith. He said, so that we don't disagree on these issues of how the scripture applies to our t- point in time. He says, we have a common goal, a common Lord, a common purpose, a common duty and responsibility. And uh, that's why I've always said, if someone is doing what God commands, I probably can have very, very little dispute with them on other points. Because if they got their children in public schools and they're debt-free, they're promoting the kingdom of God in every way that they can, then their eschatology um, becomes less and less relevant because they're acting, if you will, uh, as someone who believes in the victory of God. Even if they don't hold to it, they're fulfilling their responsibilities as a citizen of the kingdom as it stands today. And that's exactly what God expects us to do regardless of our beliefs. If our beliefs justify indolence and slothfulness, there's the problem. Right. If you're saying, you know, hey, I don't, we should not be doing all this outreach, you know, because things are supposed to get worse and worse. Whereas Dr. Rashduni pointed out, there are people, men of God, who refuse to come to a meeting of the church that would have changed the direction of a, of a, uh, um, say, a presbytery or what have you, because they thought that spiritual uh, advancement 
was not what God wants to do in this world. He wants it all to go to hell. And therefore, if I'm trying, if I'm actually doing things to improve the situation, that is delaying the, call, the coming of Christ. And I should not do that. I should help things slide to hell faster. So Christ comes sooner. So this kind of faulty reasoning becomes a very dangerous thing because no longer are we operating in terms of our responsibilities and duties, but letting our sense of prediction determine our actions rather than God's commands determining our actions. The proper response for all Christians is to let God's commands determine what our duty is, not our view of predictive prophecy. And if we are going to do that, if we're going to at least do what God commands, I think the prophecy issues will be debated more carefully and with more charitableness and brotherly spirit and probably more usefulness in getting to the things ironed out than they are now if people are justifying slothfulness because their eschatology justifies it. Uh, at that point, the eschatology is a hindrance to God's kingdom and not an adjunct to it or a defender of it or a proclaimer of God's kingdom. It is uh, sending it backwards and reverse and not reversing the curse, but uh increasing the curse such as it is in this world. Right. One of the things I've noticed is there are groups of people that all they want to do is debate these issues. And then there are other groups that won't even debate because they're holding to the position that they're right and they don't need to debate, which often comes across as, well, maybe they don't have a response to what those who have a different view. But you've outlined basically three perspectives up, up past fulfillment. So Revelation talks about a past fulfillment or Revelation talks about a future fulfillment or a historical one where you can see different epics, etc. Before we go into what you consider a better paradigm, I'd like to point out something you included in one of your essays and that Dr. Rush Dooney, who didn't hold to any of those three positions, actually was instrumental in helping authors who did have some of those positions go into print. And it wasn't that he was endorsing their positions because he was not, but what he was saying is we should have them lay out what they think so we can discuss it for the edification of the church, not for building up a following for their position, but that the church of Jesus Christ will be served. His view is that a given position should be presented in as strongest possible light so that we could fairly evaluate it rather than crippling it in advance and say, well, this position looks horrible. Well, it will if you've made it look horrible, if you put all sorts of lipstick on the pig or whatever the phrase you're going to use uh, in order to uh, artificially depress it and make it look unattractive uh, and highlight its negatives. We need to then... That's not scholarship at all. Scholarship is not political, at least it ought not to be. And when it becomes political, it's no longer scholarship. It's something else in the service of uh, human opinion over scripture. And that's the catastrophe. So Dr. Rashtuni believed that he was in, in, in the bounds of his charter with Chalcedon to assist those who were pushing the bounds of Christian scholarship, even in areas of study of Revelation, say, that went in a different direction than he thought was correct. That's because he was not presumptuous about his own position, and he was willing to support others, even fiscally, uh, which is a remarkable thing, because we don't often see that, that someone does that. Uh, I'll give you another example of this kind of uh, broad-mindedness, is that when Dr. Kenneth Gentry 
uh, wrote his book, The Beast of Revelation, in the late 80s, he asked the editor of the Council of Chalcedon to find a hostile critic to review it. Not a friendly one, but a hostile one. He said, I need to have interaction that I can work against. I don't want to have yes-men promoting me. I want to have uh, an uphill battle to harden my position and, and battle harden it, I mean, in the sad sense, and uh, work out the details. So that I thought was commendable of him seeking out a, a critical assessment of his views versus one that was favorable to him from the get-go, you know, someone from the, the gallery, if you will, of people who agree with him. He chose uh, and asked for a critic that was hostile, not hostile personally, but someone who would oppose his position and try to raise a biblical cause against it. Uh, and that always stuck with me. Not too many people have that approach. And this is what we need to see a lot more of, because right now we're getting a lot of yes men supporting all sorts of uh, protagonists. And it, it's not a good look, as they say <laughs> right. uh, in, in modern lingo. It simply means that uh, we're divided into camps. We're very schismatic in our orientation. It's my way or the highway. And this is not the way of Christian scholarship. And as you well know, Chalcedon was founded to... Um, move Christian scholarship forward to provide a distinctively Christian scholarship and apply it to all things, including Bible study, for that matter, the understanding of the book of Revelation. So that, because we're talking about Christian scholarship, which means opening up the word of God completely uh, without restrictions. Uh, Dr. Reshton, he said, there is no final answer yet on the book of Revelation. I have my convictions, but I'm also going to promote men of God who give a reasoned re uh, account for a different approach to the book and it may open my eyes to see it differently, or vice versa. It could go either way. So uh, I think this is the right approach. I believe we still uh, pursue that to this day at Chalcedon. Uh, we're sympathetic critics of most of the other positions, and I think it's important to say that we might be critical or sympathetic. We see the good in it. We see the value of it. We see the uh, the appeals of it. We see the attempt to make it biblical and, and how the inner workings of these various models are. We understand them. You know, you talked about the historic approach, which sees different consecutive epochs, eras of time in the book of Revelation. And probably the best commentary right now um, is by the late Dr. Francis Nigel Lee. Now, Dr. Rushton, he was not a historicist. He was an idealist, which we'll probably discuss a little bit more. It's, it's a little bit different approach. But he and Dr. Lee were very, very close friends, as you well know. Mm -hmm. So so they're very staunch or stark difference of opinion on the book of Revelation was not a barrier to their working together in a lot of other areas and even them having uh, respect for each other's approach to the book of Revelation because they can each could say, I'm getting something out of his analysis and Rush could say, I'm getting something out of Dr. Lee's analysis. So there seems to be this variety of opinion for a reason that we can have a well an embarrassment of riches from one point of view, but we're treating the other position as garbage. <laughs> That's not going to be a, any. We're not going to get anything out of our opposing view uh, if we're simply going to be uh, harsh in our in orientation, as opposed to saying, you know, there's a point in which we're all seeing through a glass darkly. God will allow us to see face to face soon, but in the meantime, we sure are treating each other abysmally and awfully. Uh, why is that? There's no basis for it. If we're seeing through a glass darkly, we should at least acknowledge the fact that maybe no one has the corner on the truth, and therefore it makes sense to continue conversation on exegetical basis, which is to say, what does the text say, uh, as opposed to uh, dividing into tribes and camps. Tribalism is not going to win the eschatology debate. In fact, it's simply going to perpetuate it longer, and less edifying uh, debate will result. 
Yes. Now, if we honestly pray, thy kingdom come, thy will be done, it's important for us to understand who the audience was and is for this book. Nobody would say, well, the book of Genesis was just written for certain people at certain time. And the gospels, yes, they have, you know, applicability and things to tell us over time. But somehow we're going to corner the book of Revelation and say, it just meant, means this and this time. So go into what you have called the idealist approach and you call it an approach. You're not calling it the final word. You're saying, this is how I choose, and not just you, others, Dr. Rush Juni being one, approach the book of Revelation in order for the Christian who reads it to apply it in furthering the kingdom of God. Sure. I'd like to do that. Let me, as is my custom, I'm going to wind back to a comment you just made. That will be done on earth as it is in heaven. You know, there's a reference in the Old Testament to the concept of God's will being done in heaven. You see, here's again where you have a Jesus making this pronouncement, explaining us to us how we should pray. And here is the third petition of the Lord's Prayer in uh, Matthew six, but it has an anchor point, and it's explained in the Psalms. Calvin brings this out when he discusses this petition of the Lord's Prayer where he says in heaven, it, the verse in the psalm says, that the angels are ministering spirits doing his will continually. That's where God's will is being done in heaven. So the God's will being done continually, nonstop, without any deviation, is what's happening in heaven. So we have a clue what it means for God's will to be done in heaven, because the psalm already gave us that input. There's a basis for it. We can anchor the Lord's Prayer in that psalm, and Calvin does. And that means the earth is supposed to be exactly like heaven in this respect, that everyone in the world is doing God's word, uh, will continually. Uh, that's where we are supposed to go. As the angels do in heaven, so he be here on earth. So that's where the prayer should be. So just to let you know that when we're talking about earlier that there are Old Testament precedents and fundamental passages that the New Testament is erected on, here's another case of it. And often we just miss it. We just say, oh, Jesus said something brand new here. Not really. He said something because he also authored the Psalms, as we all know, uh, because he is the word incarnate. Uh, he's bringing back to all the pieces together again, and we should be aware of it so that we don't make mistakes in interpretation of what it means for God's will to be done on earth as it is in heaven. It has already been laid out for us, and as Calvin already laid it out. And how is it that we've forgotten it? It's been around since the Reformation, right? So the book of uh, Revelation if you believe that it uh, applies to the mostly to the period of time between the first and second advents, and by the second advent, I mean an event that has not happened yet, but is still in our future, uh, to be very clear on, on what my meaning is, as opposed to what someone else's meaning might be for that, uh, that there's two ways to take that. You can consider it as a historic sequence that every single section between, say, Revelation 4 to Revelation 21 is a historical sequence, chronological succession. Or I think the, uh, what idealism says is not exactly right. The book of Revelation is divided into sections, and each section covers the entire passive sequence of time between first and second advents. And then we wind back to the beginning again and look at the whole period all over again from a different angle, a different perspective, a different uh, emphasis, if you will. Uh, 
It's like looking at a diamond and you turn it in your hand to see different facets of the diamond. And that's what's going on with the idealist view. So we would say, in actual fact, the inter-advent period is described several times from beginning to end in the book of Revelation. And at the end of each of these descriptions, we end with an event of some kind. And the position of idealism that I would take, Rashtuni, toward the end of his life, would take, Warfield and others have taken, is that each of these sequences ends with the victory of the gospel and the conversion of the world. And so where you put the seams between these different sections makes a difference as to how you interpret them. So the idealist view basically says we take this as a series of approximately seven visions, say, and each of them describes the entire inter-advent period from a different angle or different point of view. Uh, and therefore, they, they do not run chronologically, only within themselves do they run chronologically. And then they start again. We resume anew with a new sequence of visions that might take a different angle, like looking at it from the point of view of people who are dead, say. Um, because one of the things that's unveiled and revealed in the book of Revelation is what happens to the saints that have gone to be with the Lord. We are have seen heaven open several times. We see an altar in heaven where the souls of those beheaded for the testimony of Christ cry out to God, How long, O Lord? We see souls in heaven again. We see heaven open in Revelation nineteen, eleven. So we are we're getting to see things behind the scenes that we would not normally see. You know, we're, we're given instead of we can, don't have to rely on the eye of faith at that point because it's disclosed to us. So these these aspects of the inter advent period are disclosed to us by John as he delivers faithfully the words that were given to him to speak uh, in on Patmos. And so okay, what, let me just interrupt for a second. Yeah. The only way the saints in the first century and those of us who follow would know what's happening in heaven with those people who have died in Christ is that God reveal that to us. So it's an important revelation to know that when the faithful die in Christ, that the promise that they won't die the second death is presented to us. And so no matter what you're going through, knowing that this is not the end, that there's more to the promise and it's actually been realized would be a comfort. It wouldn't be something that would upset people. It would be something that gave them strength. Precisely. And so that is why there's so much comfort here. We're told, by the way, in Revelation 6, that uh, they would not have to wait forever for those who persecuted them and murdered them uh, to face judgment. They're told they need to wait until their brethren fulfilled their race to run their race. And so and then they're given white linen robes to wear. They're not simply naked there, if you will. They're not being provided for. Uh, they're cared for, and the words are comforting words to them. So they're faithful in calling for God's judgment on the evil, and God says, it will be as you say, but be patient. Right. Uh, God calls us to patience, and patience is one of the virtues listed several times in Scripture, <laughs> uh, and of course it produces a fruit in us. And so there's fruit even expected on the other side of death for us. We're told to be patient even after we're dead. <laughs> so uh, newsflash, uh, you, you can't be impatient after you uh, become a disembodied soul. Um, there is still occasion for patience because God's still working here and he's not finished. And therefore we need to see, uh, as Rush, the way that Warfield puts it is that the sands of time have not yet run out of the hourglass. There's still huge vistas of things yet to happen where God is doing his amazing work in this world. And we have only seen a whisper of his power 
but of the thunderous power who can understand. And we're told that there are things that we can't possibly imagine. So we live in a day where there's lots of technology. Augustine didn't have the same technology. We live in a day where parts of the world could communicate to each other in a moment's notice. And they, King Solomon didn't have that ability. And he certainly was, you know, an all powerful man. So when we try to limit it to our day and we try to find images that will match our day, we're really saying that God only wrote this book for us or only wrote this book for the people, you know, before AD 70. And it actually steals from the people of God because depending on your orientation, it means, well, maybe I don't have to bother about this. Right. It's interesting that you mentioned Augustine. He's credited with uh, perhaps feeding the notion of idealism in the first place. I don't believe he was literally the first person to mention it, but it's prominent in his work. He talked about the concept of a recapitulo. That is, there is a recapitulation that occurs several times in the book of Revelation where it goes back to the top. That's what recapitulation means. Go back to the head, the capitis, uh, and start again. Uh, it's like putting the needle on the record again and checking out the rest of the album. And so this, what we're talking about here is not a new innovation in Christendom. It was already present in the 5th century. And I have some sources in the library here that put it even earlier than him. So it's it has a long history of in, in the interpreter's annals, if you will, uh, and and that's an important aspect. But yes, we we get these things revealed to us, and we should see them as a comforting thing uh, that God is going to he deals with the massive things on a huge scale. If He's able to control all the things that we're seeing in the Book of Revelation, then certainly He's competent to uh, harbor safely the precious souls of those who perished. Uh, for his lame's sake. And so I think that comfort level is huge. And it's a book of Revelation. It's marked in a way that you can't, don't find it anywhere else. Surely Paul is a very, very good comforter, but nothing like the Holy Spirit is and nothing like the book of Revelation is. We find a whole new level of it because it's visualized. It's not left to our imagination, if you will, or just told as a fact, a uh, abstract statement, a propositional truth. It's depicted in pictures where we can see it. Uh, and that is, tells us a lot. Not only do we see disembodied souls, we see them on thrones, for example. And that's a huge thing. Said, oh, so we do reign. We do judge angels when we die. This is an amazing thing. Uh, why aren't we paying more attention to these wonderful things? Well, we don't want to put death as the be-all and end-all because, of course, we have a job to do here. Uh, Dr. Rashtuni deals with this in his little book, amazing little book, God's Plan for Victory, where he describes some men of God talking about how tired they are of ministry because it's been a worrisome long road or hole for them. And one guy's quiet. The oldest guy among them is quiet. And they ask him, well, what's your opinion? He says, well, I don't think you should have any opinion at all about getting home, getting out of here quick. Well, why not? He says, because that would be indicative that we're unwilling to do the Lord's work as he's called us to do it. We should work our butts off, if you will, <laughs> until he calls us home, until it's time to say, uh, uh, now uh, here's your servant dismissed, right? Yeah. And until that point in time, we should be pedal to the metal. We sh every, every last breath should be for the Lord and his kingdom and advancing it. You know, let that be the first thing, that Christ had the preeminence in all things. And therefore, the um, impetus to be excused from service is a wrong one. And I think this is what motivates a lot of eschatolo eschatology, 
is a motivation I think is not in the best interest of Christian um, character. Because if the appeal is, hey, you're not going to die, you're going to escape this and escape that, uh, then, of course, my motivation for holding to that view is I, I'm not going to have to face certain things. I, I can, I'm, I've take the coward's way out, if you will. That's, that's just probably not the best way to put it. Well, you know what it sounds like to me? You know how the you hear it in sports, you know, you've got the bench. Somebody's saying, put me in, coach. And someone else will say, I want to sit on the bench and enjoy the victory later. We should be wanting to participate as God calls us. Yeah and not focus on anything other than his instructions, which goes back to, if you don't know God's law, it could be very confusing as to what exactly are we supposed to do. And that's another point about the book of Revelation. The the, the devil goes off to make war on those who keep the commandments of God. And I think that tells us that the law of God is still at the center of the battle at the point in time that the prophecies of the book of Revelation are taking place. Maybe this is one reason that folks want to put it in the 70 AD, because they say, okay, the law of God has now been dealt with back then, it's over with. Or in the future, saying, well, the Jews come back to Palestine, and this, that, and the other happen, then the law of God comes back for seven years, or for 1,007 years, say. But it's not a Christian concern. Well, in idealism, it is a Christian concern, because God is going to make war now, with those who keep the commandments. And if you think that's not currently happening, you're not opening your eyes to the newspapers. Right. Because Christians are routinely hauled up before magistrates for homeschooling or for uh, their convictions about what they're going to cake, they're going to bake, et cetera, et cetera. No, there is war being made against those who keep the commandments. When we did our recent podcast on Socialism. I talked about a bank that I believe is a, was tried to get chartered with the Federal Reserve that was a full reserve bank. I believe it was up in Montana, if I recall the story. And they were told that, that they weren't they weren't going to be chartered because it was too risky to have a full reserve bank, even though the actual risk is <laughs> a fractional reserve bank. Right. Because there's no risk in a full reserve bank because all the money's there. You can't have a run on with such a bank. But that's because they're making war on those who keep the commandments. You see, if you keep the commandments, say, on debt, then they're going to make war on you because they really want you to have a huge, massive mortgage so that you're mortgaged up to the gills and break God's law about the length of time that you can have a debt, say. And Christians that aren't actively working to get out of that uh, are part of the problem because, of course, that destroys our money supply, too. That's why economics is a big part of the law of God, and it's a big part of the book of Revelation. Even the one that everyone wants to read about is in Revelation 13 is all about economics. So you better understand that the law of God applies and that that's exactly the uh, wedge that the devil tries to drive between us uh, as people of God is to prevent us from being able to buy and sell if we're actually going to um, want to use godly currency, which is a currency that is not a fiat currency and is not fluctuating in value. Because those things are termed to be abominations, which the Bible says you may not even own them, have them on your in your person. You can't have it. And since we do, that means we're all part of the system. And we have, we're the last persons probably who want to see the system uh, collapse because we're on the take. Or as Dr. Rushmany said, we have larceny in the heart. We want to pay off debts in cheaper dollars later. And therefore, we're the proper prey of the beast who currently is operating in the sense that he's able to prevent anyone from buying or selling without using illegal tender laws. And this was common knowledge 200 years ago when Noah Webster wrote his famous dictionary, the English language in 1828, he made some very profound comments about legal tender laws. 
He says, they are the devil in the flesh. Why do you get that comment? He got it out of Revelation 13 and also uh, Proverbs 11, 1 and other passages in scripture, which says that anything other than a proper currency is an abomination. So if the devil can get us all using abominations to pay for things, uh, he's won a big battle already. So that's why the economic battles are critical, uh, because only then is God's law kept, and only then uh, is God's will done on earth as it is in heaven. Because I assure you, there's no abominations in heaven. They've all been long since removed when Satan was cast out. Yes. There's something else that I think is important to realize. Sometimes this side of heaven, Christians decide that they have to be soft and kind to the enemies of God. And yet in the book of Revelation, the the disembodied souls, as you refer to them, rejoice when God's wrath is poured out on his enemies. They're not just sort of covering their eyes and saying, oh, this is embarrassing. How is this going to play out in the press? They say, hallelujah. They don't say, wow, I wonder why he's being so harsh, because they see from heaven what we don't always see from our vantage point. Not only that, they emphasize justice in their thinking. They are rejoicing that God is a God of justice. Uh, and that there is no shadow of turning in him. He's a God of father of lights, right? No shadow at all. Uh, and that's what the rejoicing is, that he, his word is faithful and true. And that's what Christ is um, adorned with, right? The, the thing on his chest, it says, you know, he's the faithful witness and true. Uh, and therefore, he's also just and having salvation. Now, he came the first time on the colt, the foal of an ass. But he says, but he is just having salvation. Uh, two things at once. He's just, which means he's implementing God's law. He himself is just, and he sees that justice uh, is implemented, and he's the one who's bringing it, and he brings salvation as well. So the two are married. Justice and salvation are married, and they're married at the cross, clearly. And then the work that God does in our hearts also reverses the curse and makes us to think anew and work anew and seek to take every thought captive to the obedience of Christ. And we have to start with economic thought among other things, family thought. But the book of Revelation should not be our get-out-of-jail-free card to say we can abandon the law of God and do what we want because we're not going to be here. You know, the phrase of Hal Lindsey, I think, will live in infamy, says we should live like people who don't expect to be around much longer. That has got to be the transcript of slothfulness to the nth degree. You know, we should actually live as people who not only expect to be around longer, but who expect to do what God requires of us and inculcate the same in our children and children's children. So right. there's a there's a mission here. Now, I want to go back to idealism real quick since we only touched on it briefly, uh, aside from setting uh, Augustine is one of the initial people who put it into motion. There's two different approaches to idealism. You can, where you put the seams, I mentioned this comment, I said where you put the place where one vision ends and the next one begins makes a difference in the outcome because you can set the seams up, as I call it, so that every passage, every one of these visions in Revelation ends with the gospel of victory, total gospel of victory. But you can also set them up in a different place and end up with a catastrophe. Uh, if you're clever enough and you try to put the pieces and, and moving, move the blocks here and there and say, okay. And that's why the position has been adopted both by amillennialists who are fairly pessimistic about cultural gains between now and Christ's return, uh, and postmillennialists 
uh, and those who follow a more consistent postmillennialism, like Warfield, uh, who say, "Well, we look at got to put the divisions at the right locations." I spend a lot of time talking about the fact that the chapter divisions in Revelation are usually at bad places, and the most significant error here is eight one, the very first verse of chapter eight. Really, should be the end of chapter seven. Because it's the conclusion. It's a big conclusion of what's going on. And it's a victory verse. It's talking about the space of ha- of uh, uh, silence in heaven for a half hour. And that's a very, very significant event. And I, and I brought a whole bunch of commentators into play to show how astonishing that verse is. It actually, it's worded in a very strange way that a silence became. It doesn't just say it was quiet. There was actually like, like a creation of silence. And the silence connotes God's peace with the world instead of with heavens being a roiling with thunder and lightnings and judgments there is no need for it anymore because the whole world has been converted at that point the great commission has succeeded the holy spirit has finally put her part on all living flesh and so there is no rebellion on the world anymore at that point you know no man need teach his neighbor saying no to the lord because they all know the lord from the least to the greatest there is no exception to the rule so that's what that silence means. And so we get passage after passage in Revelation where we get a victory motif, the most obvious being in Revelation eleven fifteen. Now are become the kingdoms of the world, the kingdom of our Lord and Christ, and he shall reign forever and ever. At that point, all the kingdoms of the world are declared to be Christ, and he rules over all of them forever and ever. I know people want to take that in a very negative sense. He says, yeah, he rules over all these rowdy nations that hate him and want to spit in his face. No, no, they become his, and when they become his, they don't. Uh, uh, he doesn't lose anything that's been given to him. <laughs> At that point, Psalm two's promise is uh, realized. You know, ask of me, and I shall give you the nations as your inheritance, and it's not a gag gift that that you know you open up the box and a snake spring, called snake springs out. No, it's a tremendous thing, and that's laid out in Psalm in Isaiah fifty three that he shall see um, the result of his labors. Uh, and the fruit of it, you know, the spoils, if you will, is described in uh, Isaiah 53 for having laid out his life on the cross. Uh, it's a tremendous event there. And so oftentimes we miss it. So I want to point out that there is victory throughout the book of Revelation. It's in places that we don't normally see it. It's in chapter 17. It's in chapter 14. Uh, it's even in chapter 20, verses 7 to 9. What people usually think is a bad verse, saying, hey, look at all this. There's a huge group of people assembled there's an army to attack the camp of the saints and fire comes down from heaven to destroy them. That actually happens over the centuries. It's a continuous fire. It's a visual picture of Romans 1, 18, where Paul says the wrath of God is being revealed from heaven against all unrighteousness. I emphasize all three words because it's important. Paul is teaching this, that the wrath of God is plural, you know, currently, currently being revealed from heaven, sources heaven, coming down to here, against all unrighteousness of man. So there's no exceptions to it. It's a continual pouring of fire, and fire is the symbol that God is used of God's wrath throughout the book of, uh, of the Old Testament. Here we need to know the Old Testament. It's a passage in Second Chronicles 34, which says, Great is the uh, rage of the Lord that's poured out upon us for not having done what is said in this book. And what does the Hebrew say? The literal Hebrew doesn't say rage. It says, Great is the glowing fire of the Lord that is poured out upon us. The glowing fire is exactly what is happening. It's God's wrath. It's rage. It's visualized in Revelation, but the reality is now we're living in that period of time where the earth is being baptized by fire, as John the Baptist says in Matthew 3, 11, 12, and it's being purged. 
just like it says in Isaiah 4, verses 4 and 5. So if you go through the passages of Scripture, everything aligns in a very powerful way if we have eyes to see it. Now, I know people who will dismiss it. And that's okay. Let everyone study for themselves because uh, we want to encourage everyone to be Berean, and we can't do their scholarship for them. But we can certainly indicate there are better places to put the fishing boat and stick your uh, pole in the water. And we've got a lot of scholarship that's been ignored and why should we have to re- reinvent wheels in this area when there's folks that have done a lot of tremendous work in this study of eschatology and they're being ignored? Their books get old and don't get reprinted, certainly not new editions. You have to get these old things that are hard to read. And yet there is gold there in them, their books, so to speak, <laughs> uh, because these men were sanctified and talked about sanctified Christian scholarship. And that's a concept that now has been redefined as what's the most popular, best-selling Christian paperback. I'm sorry, but paperbacks are not going to solve this problem. They're not going to get us the best interpretation of Revelation. They might get the author a lot of money if it's sensational enough, but we're not talking about a sensational approach. We're talking about a responsibility-based approach to the book of Revelation, like Greg Uttinger Uttinger does with his very little short uh, booklet. and that's important because that we do that, that we understand that we're dealing with God and God expects things from us. And he also is going to do certain things with this world in order to transmute it into the shape it needs to be. He's going to make every crooked path straight. And that's promised in Isaiah. And it's a difficult way to get there. And the book of Revelation articulates the battle by which God's kingdom finally emerges triumphant over the world. And does so essentially by absorbing all these other kingdoms into itself. It either becomes chaff or it's absorbed into the kingdom of God. That's the two choices you have. And I think that the more you look at it like that, like, for example, the crooked will be made straight. I think when we're told to walk the straight and narrow path, that's the straight path. We can see these, well, parallels, or we can see that we've seen these things before. And it should spark our interest to be investigating what else have we overlooked that is confirmed in other parts of Scripture. Exactly. You know, we do overlook it a lot. Part of it is because we have a culture of saying, hey, I'm going to read through the Bible in a year. And I've encountered folks, and I use this example, it could be one of hundreds I could use, but I'll encounter someone who says, I've read the Bible 20 times. He says, so you understood what you read? He says, oh, yes. I said, so tell me about fruit trees being circumcised. And they'll give me this deer in the headlight look. And I have to take him to the passage in Leviticus where it says, you don't you know, eat the fruit for the first several years. It's not circum- uncircumcised to you. The tree is not prepared for actually delivering its strength to you and fruit-wise. Uh, and so they're surprised. Says, I don't see how I missed that. And I said, I see how you missed it because you didn't understand it when you read it. That's why Paul says better five words that are understood than a thousand that aren't. So if we're not reading for understanding, we're not going to get the benefit of the word of God. We might get um, osmosis effects, and that's wonderful that we get something out of reading the word of God, but we get, we get so much more if we understood it. And I think the Ethiopian eunuch understood that, right? Because he says, how will I know what this meant unless someone explained it to me, open up the scripture to me? And so Philip discusses the issue, and finally the man is motivated to action. Here, there's some water. What's to prevent me from being baptized? And they go down into the water. So uh, understanding ends up with action, as we see in the case of that eunuch. If he didn't understand it, he wasn't about to go anywhere, and he wasn't going to. He was going to drive right past the water <laughs> and not be baptized. So understanding is critical, and yes. if we don't understand it, well, we have a problem. And that's why I think 
when people say, I know exactly who, what 666 is, it's the barcode scanner or this or that or the other, it's the, the big beast computer, I know for a fact that they're not pulling their answer from scripture. Yes. In fact, they're, they are make a point of finding something in the year 2023 that they can uh, uh, say, there it is, that's it right there, as opposed to doing diligent study of scripture to understand where maybe those ideas in Revelation come from. They're not following what wisdom requires, and wisdom, the source of it should be the Old Testament and the New together. And certainly at the time that the Revelation was written, the one thing that you could have at your hand is the Old Testament. You know, they were there in the synagogue, so you could get the scrolls out. They could be opened up. You can ask a, a rabbi uh, if you needed to. A, a scribe should know all these things. Yes. Know? But so we, who are the scribes today? You know, I'm not sure that we have that level. And the seminaries have turned so liberal, it's uh, scary because they don't want, are interested in God's law. They're certainly not interested in the kingdom's victory unless it is a what I call a Neoplatonic one. Uh, as opposed to one over the earth itself. You know, we see that the nations learn uh, God's ways when his judgments are in the earth. There's a purpose laid out for Revelation's judgments in the earth because we are to learn from them. And uh, there's a didactic purpose, as Isaiah puts it out. Uh, and I think we miss that. And therefore, the blessings of understanding might be alien to us. We might have the understanding from reading and getting comforted, but there's so much more blessing to be had in the book of Revelation if we would knuckle under and actually do the necessary study of the Old Testament. Part of this is that the pastors in the pulpits don't want to do the study necessary, and they will probably not rock the boat if that study creates problems with the people who want to not die, for example. If people are convinced that they're not going to see death because they're going to be raptured, then you're going to take away their candy if you say, actually, you're going to be you know, late to rest with your fathers. Oh, no, I'm going to go to church, which says I'm not going to die. Right. Um, so that's preference. Uh, I, I can, there's an understandable character flaw that's there, but who doesn't have that at least beating underneath the, the surface? Because we're selfish. Uh, yes. And that's one of the things that the Holy Spirit is driving out of us is selfishness, right? Yeah. Um, lovers of self is laid out as a problem in Scripture, not, a, not necessarily a benefit. <laughs> So, in summary, you could say that the book of Revelation is about the transfer of sovereignty from the usurpers that are going to fully come to Christ. The false heirs are going to be displaced, and all of God's promises will be fulfilled. Yes, you've uh, put it in the words that Dr. Rashtuni himself used in his commentary on Revelation. Uh, and I think it is appropriate for him to see the visions in that from that interesting angle that there's a disinheritance going on. Uh, and he's not the only one who's seen it. Other uh, strong commentators on Revelation have seen this exact thing. There's a transfer of sovereignty from the humanist, if you will, to the Christians. And it's a resented transfer, but it's an inexorable one and, and because God's behind it. The Holy Spirit is, uh, is drives across the world until it, the world is filled with the lodge of the Lord as the waters cover the sea. And so we're on the winning side, and the other side is simply going through its death throes. And it's an ugly thing to see, um, but that's the way God's is going to play it, so that we can uh, understand God's ways and his judgments on earth and be instructed by them. Now, a couple of things that's happened to me as I've read through your three articles, which um, listeners can access going to calcedon.edu. 
putting in Martin's name and the book of Revelation, and you'll have three articles that, trust me, will give you lots to think about. But I've noticed how I've now approached things differently. For example, you read in the book of Revelation about the harlot and the bride. And now I'm reading through the book of Proverbs. And what do you see? You see the adulterous woman contrasted with the virtuous woman. Now, on the one level, we're being told to be modest and to be pure and to be chaste. But are we also given a picture that we're later given a fuller picture of in the book of Revelation? I'm not going to write a commentary on this, Martin, but it was just opened my eyes to maybe there's something more here than I have been thinking. I think that's appropriate with the word of God because it has so many layers to it. Uh, If you consider who the author is, and I use the word author with a capital A, uh, there's no question that it is rich. It's a unity. It's it's actually God's breath, if you will, coming at us. The words that I speak unto you, they are spirit, Jesus says to the disciples. I think that's a very profound thing, and we should notice this, that it is it is jam-packed, and it will stand after the universe is dust. So the counsel of the Lord, that shall stand. The word of God will still be around after the universe itself is decayed. So why are we not treating it as a special gift it is to us? It's a, it's a world-transforming thing, the word of God. Okay, so before we go, because I've taken up almost a full hour, which we usually do, there are a lot of people who will ask others, are you premillennial? Are you amillennial? Are you postmillennial? And one of the things in um, the last two articles that you hinted at and then pretty explicit about is that possibly we have looked at the millennium from a perspective that makes it chronological at some point. And your view, or at least the view you were sharing, explain a little bit of that view in terms of another way to look at the millennium. Right. The thousand years is contrasted with a little season, a microchronon in the Greek. And the principle of interpretation here is that we should probably use the previous appearances in the book of Revelation to this concept of the short time, uh, the short season, the little season. And they, that idea appears sometimes in the exact same words, but certainly the concept does in chapter 6, in 12, 12, uh, and in chapter 17, for that matter, and then back again in Revelation 20. And that period of time, the little season, is uh, basically the symbol for the time between the advents. So it has very little to do with the actual period of time. It's a symbol of the of, um, incompleteness, actually. It's a seven cut in half. It's you know, That's why we use 12, 16 days or you know so many months, uh, 42 months. And so this is a picture of a short time. It's called the last hour by John in his epistle. So the what is contrasted here in the book of Revelation, the 20th chapter, is 1,000 years in a very, very short time. And what these actually represent is the difference between our life on earth, which is a short time, and then when we go to be the Lord, when we die and become a disembodied soul for a while, and then we enter the thousand years. So these are not actually consecutive periods of time. They are time symbols. And if you want to look at it with a clock, they actually occur simultaneously. The short period, the short season occurs down here and has been occurring for the last 21 centuries. 
the thousand years has been occurring only in heaven for those who've died in the Lord. And that's been going on for the exact same amount of time. And they both end at the same point in time when God gives up the kingdom to the Father and is all in all after the last enemy, which is death, is destroyed. So these are two different realities. And they, again, are pictures of something that Paul describes. And Paul describes it twice in the following kinds of words, where he says, I don't consider the current troubles worthy to be compared to the exceeding weight of glory to come. So he compares a short period of time that's difficult, which is our life here, and the exceeding weight of glory to come is what happens when we are going with the Lord, when we are in the Lord's presence in heaven. And so he's talking about a short time here compared to the long time. And there's twice in the book of Paul, uh, Paul's writings that this comparison between a short time and a long time uh, of blessing uh, after one dies is laid out. Uh, and that's actually what is being taught in the book of Revelation. So that's why you only see souls in the millennium. It says, uh, John says, I saw the souls of them that were beheaded, et cetera, et cetera. So he didn't see them. He saw the souls of them. And so these are disembodied souls from the get-go. Uh, and therefore, if you take that very, very seriously, then we have to say, well, this makes a lot of sense insofar as it wind back to middle of chapter 19. We saw what? We saw heaven opened. And so everything that's going on is what's going on up in heaven from that point of view. And we're still in that scenario. And these thrones are in heaven. And if you actually look at the well, where's this concept of us sitting in thrones? Well, it's already back in Revelation 3.21, where Jesus says the same thing. He says, he was faithful and overcometh, and faithful unto death, but I will give with him to sit with me in my throne, even as I am seated with my father in his throne. So we are seated in Christ's throne at the point in time that we die. And this is what we see a single throne in Revelation 3.21. It's represented by a plurality of thrones in Revelation 20, but the exact same concept. In order to enter the millennium, you need to die. You need to shed the body that you have currently, and you become a disembodied soul, and then you wait in heaven until such time as the general resurrection happens, and that's when death is destroyed. And when death is destroyed, the separation of body and spirit itself is undone. Uh, and that's an important point to see. So what most people think is there's a period of time on earth that lasts for, say, a thousand years or an indefinite time. It doesn't matter. But it's considered to be happening on earth. And I think this is where the error starts. Uh, it actually is happening in heaven because these are disembodied souls that are being spoken of. Uh, and once you grasp that and treat that as kind of a normative statement, a defining or directing statement, then the rest falls into place. And then the little season starts to make sense. It's, you know, as Warfield said, the, uh, Satan's activity occurs outside the thousand years. See, Satan was thrown out of heaven in Revelation 12, 12. And that's why he says he's angry, he's wrathful, because he knows he only has the short time, the little time. He's now on earth, the, per the zone that's defined by the little time. He no longer is allowed in heaven. He used to be in heaven. Look at Job 1 or Zechariah 3. There he is accusing the saints. He accuses Job. He accuses uh, the priest, um, Joshua the priest, high priest. In, uh, and uh, But guess what? He's no longer in heaven in Revelation 12. So he's gone. He's a, no longer a factor. He's not a, someone that we have to deal with when we die because he's been ejected from heaven. And that's the point is that heaven is a Satan-free zone. And this is what happens. He only right. occupies the little season, the short time. And he's very angry about that because he got ejected from heaven and he can only do work down here. And so he's only bound, if you will, with respect to heaven. He's not unbound. He's not bound here. A lot of people will say, well, there's passages in Matthew that say 
Didn't Jesus bind the strong man? Yes, he did when he was casting out demons. But this has nothing to do with the binding of Satan away from the saints. We still have to deal with Satan here. And in Warfield's view, the, 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 the victory of Christ is so complete that he completely converts the entire world, even with an unbound Satan, with Satan resisting him every step of the way. He defeats Satan completely, and Satan has no excuse Whereas in a lot of people's view of the current situation, they say, well, Satan is now bound, but we cannot get a completely saved world. We'll never uh, have the gospel convert everybody. You know, it's not that powerful. There's always enough sin to be more powerful than God's gospel is. And I see that conflicting with Romans 116 and a ton of other scriptures for that matter. Uh, but nonetheless, but a very different view it is of victory, because in one position, Satan is unbound, active on the earth, and loses everything to the last soul by the last day. And then finally, even death itself is destroyed, and he could do nothing to stop it. In the other view, Satan is bound, so Jesus has no excuse not to be able to convert everybody, but he fails to do so. And so we have a huge reversal in that model of eschatology, and the world ends with the Great War. And at that point, the promises of Isaiah 2, 4, about no more, wherever more, are essentially put in the, in the dustbin because you cannot end history with a war and treat Isaiah 2, 4 as a fulfilled scripture or as even a correct prophecy. It's failed. Uh, and that's, I think, a, a problem that we shouldn't have to face. I believe the prophecy victories, prophecy verses should be taken um, seriously when they speak of a total victory. And if they do, and they do, uh, then by all means, let's not uh, give away points at the very end of Revelation when everything is in symbolic form and all the symbols are self-explanatory if we look back throughout the book of Revelation to get the clues and the cues to put the picture together. So it seems that God wants us to work at this. Mm -hmm. I'm thinking of the final blessing that's laid out in Revelation. Blessed are those who do his commandments, oh yeah, here we are with the law again, that they may have the right to the tree of life and may enter through the gates into the city. And of course, that city is the new Jerusalem. So to me, Paul's statement to live is Christ, the little season, but to die is gain, going into the fulfillment of the promises of God, where there is no more sin, no more pain, and they are um, appreciating what they saw by faith, and now they get to see it by sight. Yeah. And of course, not only are they waiting, they're also reigning on their thrones. And I think this is where passages like first, was it Corinthians 6.3, Know ye not that ye shall judge angels? When should that happen? I think the correct view is that when you die, you get to judge angels. At that point, you can identify angels individually. I would imagine those are demons, really. Uh, but, you know, there's where the time frame and the proper judicial apparatus exists. You're on a throne and you can judge the angels. And so that's, we grab, we essentially uh, graduate to a tremendous honor and glory, uh, in Christ. And we don't have it in ourselves, of course, but in Christ as adopted sons and daughters, we enjoy this privilege to be able to judge the angels. Um, and if you know anything about judgment, you need witnesses, you need this, that, and the other. And uh, that all is present. That apparatus is present in heaven. It's not present in, on the earth. Um, we don't even know the names of the angels or what they did, but uh, right. they do. And so that's a significant fact to uh, keep in mind. Uh, when does that happen? I think Paul was very clear. It does happen. I think the best answer is 
you're being prepared for that here and now. This is the uh, training camp, right, uh, for not only battles here on the earth, but some interesting things that are going to happen in heaven. It won't be battles, but they will be judicial actions where we partake and, and, and rule with Christ in his throne, as he says. He, they shall sit with me in my throne, and they shall reign. That's even laid out in the very first chapter of uh, Revelation, you know, verse 5 and 6, you know, you know, kings and priests unto God. That's That indicates you know, a judicial bearing as well as a regal bearing and a, a, a priestly bearing. So we have a job to do, and I think that's the essence of it. And that job does not end when we die. We rest from certain things, but could be active in other areas too. Right. Which makes me think of the various kingdom parables of the wedding feast and being invited to the wedding and having to wear the proper clothing and even the, pa- the parable of the talents. In other words, God is going to look at us on what we've done with what he's given us and will be rewarded accordingly. So, um, a lot of people think of heaven as this, you know, walking around in white gowns and playing harps and not doing much. I hope and tend to look at it as a much greater opportunity to work without the stain and encumbrance of sin. Amen to that. Yes. All right. Thank you, Martin. Along with reading the articles I referenced, you also mentioned Dr. Rushdoony's God's Plan for Victory. Anything else you want to recommend for people who want to take a deeper dive? That he, uh, Though he came to a different conclusion later in his life, there's some very powerful insights in his commentaries on Daniel and Revelation in the book, Thy Kingdom Come. It dates from 1970. He shifted some of his views more to a total victory later. And uh, so you'll see an earlier version of his approach to Revelation 20 and other passages. But it is still a very powerful read because it does do a very good job of talking about the transfer of sovereignty and man's usurpation of God's authority and God's response to man's actions and how uh, the nations are as a drop in the bucket. And whatever they plan to do is a vanity and, and, and more less than nothing, right? And uh, so we always worry about all the tumult of nations today. And Dr. Rushing takes the position that Isaiah takes. You know, the nations are like the you know, dust of the balance and less than nothing. And that, and that means we have a big view of God. We have a big God in our picture. And having a big God makes for small nations. If you have mm-hmm. a big view of man, then you end up with a small God. And the book of Revelation will not be a comfort on any theory of its interpretation. Lots to think about. And what's more, a charge to say, study to make yourself approved so that instead of coming up with your conclusion or this person's conclusion, that as we interact with the scripture, we allow the Holy Spirit to speak to us directly. Exactly. Thanks for listening to Out of the Question. For more information on this and other topics, please visit calcedon.edu.